thank you very much, especially to Miguel. I'm really grateful for this occasion to be here. Hope you will not be disappointed. What I want to do is the following. Uh, taking as a starting point the concept of parallax that I elaborated in my book of the same name, I want to begin just with a couple of indications on how ideology functions today. Then, from here, I want to go to two concrete examples. Today's Russian contemporary, now, some tendencies in painting and architecture, the so-called neo-Stalinist Gothic, and then, here in the West, uh, this big so-called holy grail of architecture, the uh, performance art venues, if some of you were around a year or more ago when I gave uh, talk at Jack Hilton's uh, gallery, I'm very glad and honored that he is here. I will not sell the same stuff, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> please don't be afraid. And then, to the end, what are French for? They are here to be beaten into a pulp, so um, very critical finale on Badiou art and politics. Why I think it doesn't work. <laughs> I will try to provide a theory of why he is so popular in the United States. Because <laughs> to attack you directly because the way his notion of subtraction is perceived, not it's precisely, you know, we subtract, we have our nice life, and you have, don't have to do anything, but you are really subversive and all that stuff. No? Okay, <laughs> let me begin with another unpleasant event of mine, which happened to me, and I try to obliterate, repress it, not even foreclose it, whatever. No? Uh, the public debate about a year ago, I think, with Bernard-André Lévy at New York Public Library. If some of you had misfortune, of being there, <laughs> probably remember two, two details. One, first, how Bernard André Lévy made a pathetic case for liberal tolerance, something along the lines of, would you not like to live in a society where you can make fun of the predominant religion without the fear of being killed for it, where women are free to dress the way they like and choose a man they love, and so on and so on. Then I made a similarly pathetic case for communism, <laughs> along the lines of with the growing food crisis, ecological crisis, uncertainties how to deal with biogenetics, and so on. Is there not a need to find a new way of collective action which radically differs from market as well as, as from state administration? The irony of the situation was that when you state your case in this abstract Terms, you cannot but agree with both of us. What should I say to him? No, I want to live in a society where, where women are obliged to cover their faces or what. And what would he say? If you remember that wonderful detail, this is the worst safe autocritique that I can engage in. Even he said, okay, with a little bit of irony, but nonetheless, oh, if this is communism, then I am a communist. No, uh, he, you know, hardline liberal anti-communist proponent of free market and so on and so on. This mutual misunderstanding was the proof that we were both there knee deep in ideology. Ideology is precisely such a the obliteration of the let's call it the thick background noise which 
provides the actual meaning in a concrete situation of what you are saying. You know, ideology is to forget that when somebody says, oh, I want to live in a society where you can make fun of religion, it's not just a statement in the air. It means something, if you say this in Tehran, where, by the way, according to my Iranian friends, everybody will agree with you. The, the, my basic experience with my Iranian friends is that they make much more fun about their own religion than an average Jew or Christian. Just okay, they don't do it publicly. True. And this is a big difference. But nonetheless, don't, please don't take Iranians as some kind of fundamentalist fanatics who Never, I don't think there is today, it's just good to know this, you know, when you read all this stuff about fundamentalism. I don't think there is a country today where there are, the whole society is penetrated by this obscene humor. So much making fun of, for example, I was told the elementary idea of a mullah, the Islam clergy, is that he must be gay and corrupted. No? <laughs> That's almost kind of a, to refer to Saul Kripke, this rigid designator, you know, possible words. Why I'm saying this? Because uh, more than ever, this is how ideological battles are fought today. I want to mention an example which of a politics which goes on now. By now, I mean almost literally now. It started, I think, a week ago. A friend of mine will answer. My good friend, the Jewish cinema maker, Udi Aloni. Maybe you saw it in the, I think it's still last issue of, uh, how is it called, of uh, New York Review of Books. The two, okay, three, I only know two. I'm sorry, the third person is not known to me, which means nothing. There are Strange as it may sound, there are things in the world that I don't know about. <laughs> but there are uh, uh, signed, the, uh, namely, Woody alone with some of his friends was involved in organizing a movement, sending an open letter to the Toronto Film Festival, apropos of the fact that the city they were celebrating this year was Tel Aviv celebrating it, and that was the point, as an open city of cultural diversity, and so on, anti-racist, solidarity, whatever you want, and so on, and so on. This call typically was, this open letter then triggered the mobilization of the entire Jewish state apparatus, the Jewish General Council, for example, in LA, mobilized Seinfeld, Borat, and so on. And it's interesting to learn about uh, the Borat guy, no? <laughs> that how he can make fun of, you see, here you can see already, to make a jump back, the falsity of this Bernard André Levy, no? Like, he can make in his Borat movie fun of everything, no? But you know, when you have the Zionist interests, all of a sudden fun, fun stops there, no? No longer Bora, but this is also my reproach, incidentally. I mean, I'm tempted to write something about it. About the guy, I even forgot his first name, I don't know. I mean, I, when I'm here, I watch only one TV station, of course, all normal people do Fox News, no? <laughs> my favorite is the idiot uh, back or what something, no? You know, what, you see, this is what I like about him. How first he does, my God, he has worse tics than me, you know, all those making faces, making fun, shouting. But then 
at the end, it's like Roberto Benigni at his worst. <laughs> at the end, after all the cruel irony, he makes a simple point looking into the camera where you are about to cry or to take it seriously, you know. He makes fun of Obama, neo-Nazi, whatever, but then he says, and that black guy who was beaten to death, do we still care for that? That's the true point of comedy, I claim. At that point, when he makes it. And so, again, along the same lines, I would have dealt with uh, the Borat guy. But let me go on. Why I'm telling you this, immediately I'll come to the point. It's interesting how this call, appeal, which had only a very precise point, and both Woody and me already <coughs> paid the price for it, even from the Palestinians, I will tell you immediately how, uh, was totally falsified into a call to totally boycott Israel, even those from Israel who are critical towards the politics of the state of Israel, which is again, total lie, totally invented, and so on. Now I come to my story, I'm just faithful to myself here. A year ago, I went to the Israel to the, sorry, to the uh, Jerusalem Film Festival to help Woody to support his movie, Forgiveness, and that was, I was attacked by Palestinians, some of them. As, uh, there was even an open letter about, against me circulating with the America, who I took the side of Zionists, and so on, and so on. And then I precisely stated my position that I was there because I think that in no way, first, I don't want to boycott Israel because, you know, I'm coming from Europe, that even if you play all these differences, Israel, uh, Jews, like, it's too close, you know, in Europe saying, let's boycott the Jews, unfortunately, means something. Even if you introduce all the qualifications, like we mean only the Jew, uh, sorry, <laughs> we, we, mean, we mean only the state of Israel, not the Jews, you play too much with fire. But the reason I only went there as Udi's guest, as a private person, and I stated publicly, stated it publicly there, it's precisely now I'm coming to my point of the ideology involved in it. The way the Jerusalem Film Festival was presented was, you know, we live in the most dangerous part of the world, madness, walls, people shooting. But here we try to reconstruct a, a place of simple culture, an, an island of sanity in the middle of that madness. No, you will not get out as simple as that. This very presentation of Jerusalem as an island of sanity is the ideology of colonialism the state of Israel. This is how it works. You present your, and this is what they are doing now, I know it from my Jewish friends, all around. They are now dispossessing a large part of East uh, Jerusalem to do what? A big multicultural park where all religions will be represented and so on and so on. So, you know what I mean? I don't hear to repeat uh, the words of Brecht, you know, who said, you know, this famous poem of Brecht, where he said, in what set, something like, in what set times do we live when even to speak about nature, like celebrating nature in poetry, is a sin. I mean, because if you talk about this, it means you don't talk about social injustice, catastrophes. For the same reason, I would say, to sit in Jerusalem with the wall 
less than a mile from you and talk about an island of reason and so on is obscenity. But again, at the same point, absolutely, I'm totally opposed to any kind of boycotting Israel or whatever, and so on and so on. It's difficult, you know, and that's why I admire my friend Udi alone. It's, it's very difficult to walk this straight line, to avoid all the false temptations, the false blackmails. And this is the point to reject. The, all my real Jewish friends, when they show some sympathy for Palestinians, they do it in a truly honorable, radical way, which means that's the best statement I got from them. Not, I, I shouldn't be too identified to being a Jew, you know, once you step out on Syria. No, 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 they say this is our way of being truly faithful to the ethical core of Jewish experience. I'm not sympathetic with Palestinians because somehow renouncing my identity. That's the way to be faithful to myself. That's, and this is difficult today, to walk this narrow path, avoiding, and I'm the first to admit, I mean, maybe next week when I give that more blah blah political talk at the Cooper Union, I will more go into this uh, political aspect of uh, how I don't, uh, how to put it, again and again I see, that's why I'm addressing this to you, again and again I see this double trap of how if you criticize Israel, you are told, but aren't you getting dangerously close to anti-Semitism? If I criticize Palestinians, I'm being told, but don't you know, uh, Zionists will take use of this and so on, and then you are one step towards justifying some kind of uh, anti-Semitism, no? In the sense of, you know, this well-known story, when they say Jews, they don't really mean Jews, they mean the state of Israel, no? Well, fuck it, why don't they say it, I mean, no? You know, because in this way, you can justify even Hitler. I mean, an elementary Marxist analysis shows you that when Hitler said Jew is our enemy, he really meant a kind of a, okay, to use the metonymic displacement of capital, no? Okay, but you will wait very long, you know, the illusion of some of today's leftists who think anything against the United States is good, so, uh, let's support so-called fundamentalists, they are anti-imperialists, is the same illusion as if in the early 30s we were to think, let's support Hitler because sooner or later he will see that he doesn't really mean Jews but capital. Well, you will wait long for that moment. <laughs> so, but you see, but what I totally that you will remain a marginal, rejected by majority, and so on. Let me make it very clear. If this were to become a state politics, let's just open borders. You would have in one month, not the imperialist revolution, but the frustrated working class revolution. Beware what happened in the United States. Do you remember that? There are also moments of beautiful solidarity. I remember how, I think, in Seattle, Something beautiful happened. Immigrant Spaniards and your own trade unions demonstrated together. This was a beautiful moment. But as a counter example, don't forget that it was Bush, not the Democratic president, who 
who tried to put in the first legalization, you know, that rule, if you are two years here, you get the green card or whatever. Because to put it in the most primitive terms of class analysis, it is in the interest of the ruling class to liberalize, I mean, the, the, or, uh, to liberalize immigration, or to put it in a different way. You know, some leftists usually talk as if uh, anti-immigrant racism is some kind of a imperialist plot out there. No, it's a spon spontaneous lower class react uh, reaction. And this is what is prohibited to say. I said this at a Marxist conference in London, and it didn't go too well. <laughs> no, they desperately tried to evoke some examples and so on of how no, but once in this end, workers were also demonstrating for, for the Pakistani and so on and so on, while, as you probably know, the most exploding in the number of votes party in Britain today is the BNP, British National Party, no? which is strictly a working class party, no? and immigrant and so on and so on. So what I'm saying is that uh, the situation described by Zaira Polio, there is a moment of truth in it, my God. Capitalism has this, has reinvented itself after 68 with this really terrifying, efficient, let's call it bombastically postmodern, whatever, dynamics. And uh, sorry to tell you, I don't see any serious, first I call it immediate, at least, alternative of the left. I respect them. The left is the <coughs> moderate left, all the economic stiglitz, Krugman. They did make one point, and of course here is where, where our attack should admit, so that now you will see that I'm not a totally liberal idiot or whatever. I am opposed to this. You know where the description is obviously false? When Zerapolio describes, opposes in such a stupid way, bureaucracy and market. Wait a minute. Today's postmodern capitalism, precisely in its flexibility and dynamics, needs more than ever state creation and state regulation. I mean, are we aware that, look at the, all the world celebrated in now United States as the model of how to avoid Europe's mistake, clinging to old welfare models, blah, blah, postmodern dynamic capitalism. Yes, but the state, sorry to, to tell you what you know better than me, the state exploded the strength of the United, and not only anti-terrorist, even regulatory and all others. So this is the first way to, the first way to complicate things. But nevertheless, uh, it's so sad I don't have time to go more into it, because the only original idea of the left, which as far as I know, I may be wrong, <coughs> apart from returning to Keynes, and at least Krugman is honest enough, you know, he said, basically, explicitly, in a couple of texts that I read, let's return to Keynes. And just, in short term, I tend to agree. I just wonder if it works in the long term. The, correct me if I'm wrong, but the only global, not some specificity or some, I don't know what country, global model that was seriously presented, and it's interesting, but I don't think it works. I'm sorry, I don't have time now to develop, would have been I don't know how popular it is here. In Europe and in Latin America, it's now extremely popular. The so-called basic income model. <coughs> no, it is already, it was invented by Robert Van Paris, uh, I hope pronouncing correctly, a Belgian leftist sociologist economist. Uh, it is 
totally supported by the Negri gang, Negri Hans and so on, and it has many outbreaks already the European Union in South Africa and in Latin American countries. For example, it was already legalized, passed into a law in Brazil. Okay, they said it will now gradually realize but the idea is an elementary one. The idea is that our societies are rich enough to provide for every member of society, irrespective of you work or not, a basic income. You get it as a citizen. A basic income presenting you to live a modest but still human life. And the argumentation is very nice. After point even Marxism, the argumentation is that hey. It is feasible because the, the majority of the people will still want more, they will work. But B, precisely because in this way unemployed and so on will be demobilized in the sense of against wild political mobilization, you know, that this is even easier in a way than all this complicated mechanism of welfare support, whatever. It's something like a leftist counter proposal to to flat tax or whatever, you know. And, and uh, the calculation works, and there is also one nice motive, you know, the big Marxist argument <coughs> against market, which is obviously true, it's that although you and the capitalists are formally equal, like both of us can say to the other, fuck you, I don't like your proposal, how much wage, whatever, but you make the free choice. But first of all, for you as individual worker, the choice is much less free, because your alternative, if you don't accept some offer is you drop dead, you are done. But in this way, that's a nice point that I like. Because it takes over the ideological right-wing motive that I mentioned. They say, this is the true freedom of choice. With basic income, also for the workers, the taking a job or not will be a true freedom, freedom to, freedom to choose because you are not forced. It's not just a formal freedom, but of course you have to work. You really have a chance to say, no, under these conditions, I prefer to live. But uh, why am I... Uh, what I find so ironic in this product is two things. First, that it is celebrated by the Negri gang. I don't mean this in a dismissive way. But why? Because if there is a motto of Negri gang, it's empire no longer state. The state is passé. But sorry, did I hear it correctly? The basic idea of basic income is that state gives to all citizens. So where is all that poetry about fluidity, no borders, and so on? State and citizenship, which is supposed, you know, we are all here the mantra, oh, don't think, no, don't, you shouldn't any longer think in the terms of nation state and so on. They return with the vanguard. The second thing, what happens with the old Marxist idea of, of exploitation? If you cling to it, then you find, I love this, which is for me incidentally what I will say now, a critical point against Marx, if anything, of how we should rethink the notion of exploitation of Marxist economics. Namely, what they basically proposed is that those few workers who really work should be exploited not only by the capitalists but also by the unemployed, you know, like <laughs> we a couple of us work and we are screwed from behind, from, like, from below, from above, 
that we work in glass find ourselves, if I may put plastic terms so that you will understand, in a sandwich position. You know, the woman between two men, you know. To take more plastic, okay. No limits, this is a, no limits for taste. Okay, sorry, let me go on. So, uh, here I think, no really to conclude, here I have problems with this youth idea, which is, to put it, I don't have time to go through it, but to put it very brutally, subtraction, I'm sad that his new book is not yet translated. This is uh, introduction, uh, how is it called? No, Manifest for Philosophy, Volume 2, where he develops his notion, which is the following one. Today, history with capital H no longer exists which means he puts it in quite clear terms that we no longer can claim to have a global social theory of the united, unique, uh, all-encompassing world historical process. At that point, but you sound strangely, Lyotard postmodern. He says, we just have fragmented narratives. And his idea is explicitly, all we can do then is react uh, intervene locally. All politics today is local. You see an injustice here, racism, you intervene. You see there, there, you intervene. As Badiou put it already years ago, for him, anti-capitalism doesn't have any meaning. You cannot, capitalism is everywhere. He says somewhere, it's the air we breathe. You cannot oppose it, it's meaningless. What can you oppose? You can oppose in politics, is this or that, social, and so on and so on. For, for, and from here, he draws, for me, I'm so sad that I don't have time, a terrible conclusion for me. Nonetheless, he has to admit that, again, for him, historical reality is experienced, he openly put it, as, puts it as symbolic fiction. You know what I will do, so that I'm not telling you bullshit now. Allow me to go on for five minutes and then for your lacombe.com. <laughs> You told me before that you wanted two hours ago. I will, this final text of dialogue with Badiou, I will give it to you. If you don't send it to Badiou, okay. No, you know what I mean, because I'm now giving you in a tiny, uh, short version. I want you to have a chance to more seriously with long passage. Embedding it. And 
claims, this is how he even, and he claims that, this here he is very precise, when he talks about the idea of communism, this is for him this kind of necessary illusion. The idea is you have to provide a story for the real or the political engagement. I found this solution very tragic in a way. I rejected it totally. Because he even goes here and more sympathetic to him. People didn't get it what he was talking at the Communist Conference in London. He even along the same lines openly advocated that he is closer to me, uh, the kind of personality. He claims you need a leader, like Stalin, whatever, Lenin. That precisely because of this necessary illusion. It cannot be just that, as he put it in a poetic way, uh, look, I will give you a quote. If an idea is, if an idea is for an individual, the subjective operation by means of which a particular real truth is in an imaginary way projected into the symbolic movement of a history, then we can say that an idea presents the truth as if it is a fact, or that the idea presents certain facts as symbols of the real, of the truth. It has to be that in the imaginary mode, the symbol comes to support the creative flight of the real. You got it, real, evanescent, disappearing, you need to, you need to locate it in some narrative, narrative. But the, the, again, I don't buy this, it's too close to Lyotard for me. The idea is you have the real of an ethical commitment, but you need an illusion for it to work. You have to tell a story, a mythical story, and so on. Uh, what I don't buy is the underlying presupposition that, to cut a long story short, I put it like this way. Some of you know Marxism a little bit, and you know that the big struggle between dogmatic Marxists and Stalinists was that dogmatic Marxists had you know, electrical materialism and historical materialism. And the big point of Western Marxists was to reject dialectical materialism, as the Stalinist stupidity and to claim historical materialism is all there is. But you almost does the opposite. He wants dialectical materialism without historical materialism. For him, historical materialism as the global theory of history is this bad Hegelianism. As if you can tell the total story of history, and this for him is communist ideology. Maybe necessary, but an illusion. Instead of communism being this punctual interventions on behalf of what he calls axiom of unconditional axiom of equality, like people are screwed there in a racist way, sexist, I intervene, but you need a story when you say this is the movement of history towards progress and so on and so on. I claim, with regard to what I developed before, that is to say this new stage of capitalism where ideology cultural ideology and politics are intertwined, intermixed. If, if we don't confront that, we are lost. We need more than ever a theory of, okay, maybe not history with capital H, not a narrative theory, but simply, uh, I'm here very old-fashioned, a theory of what goes on today. Where are we today? What is happening? I mean, we don't know. Interestingly enough, the big opponents, liberal capitalists and old Marxists, agree that it's still capitalism. 
This is the only guys who agree. But it's an open question. I think it is, but one must qualify this very much. What is happening now in China? And so, okay, I know now that in China, even Mao is made a capitalist. Did you read in the last issue of Time magazine, I think, I checked it on email, a wonderful news, that big director, you know, Jiang, Patrick, whatever, who did the hero and so on, he now totally sold to the establishment, no? And he made a mega spectacle, mega movie, telling the story, Mao founding 49 People's Republic in China, and I really have to laugh the way it is described, and I believe it, that it's in the best Stalinist way, although in pro-capitalist terms, the history is rewritten to justify Deng Xiaoping and today's China. For example, I love this. You have a scene where just before taking Beijing in 49, uh, communist groups liberate a small city just outside Beijing, and Mao walks along the street and looks for a shop where he could find a, some brand of cigarettes that he was smoking to buy. And then they informed him that all, all the rich people in bourgeoisie have escaped the communists, no? And then Mao said, sooner or later we will have to bring capitalists back and so on. Well, like Mao already knew it. <laughs> I, I love this cow, you know. The stock okay, what I'm saying is that for our political here, I don't, no, I'm more serious. I don't buy this Badiou's abstract ethics of the purity of the idea. He, I don't want to take too much time to quote him now, but he goes so far as to directly oppose the Mao's, Mao's slogan, dare to win. You know, this is the great, don't be afraid to win. And basically he says that he turns it around. He says that the lesson of the day 21st century is that uh, to win means to lose in an even more radical way. He claims there are three ways to lose. The first way is a direct defeat. You are simply crushed by the end. The second way is to lose in the victory itself. You win, but you become a new power structure, like Stalinism or social democracy. You start to imitate the enemy. And the next one is the radical one, Sendero Luminoso, Campuccia, Polto, Chaka Cultural Revolution. You want to remain pure, but you end up in self-destructive violence. He calls this very nicely, poetically, almost sacrificial temptation of the void. And his result is all these catastrophes happen, the three defeats, because you dare to win. You want to take, you did risk to take power. His idea is no, we should subtraction, withdraw, and so on and so on. I have problems here. I think that like we really need to confront what is today's capitalism. And unfortunately I don't think it is already done. And I'm not kidding, this is not just as a sign of flattering gratitude to you. Uh, you played a crucial role here. By you, I mean art galleries, precisely because we live in an epoch of cultural capitalism. You are, as Fred Jameson nicely analyzed, you are no longer just... Uh, the term cultural capitalism means many things. Among other things, means that you no longer have, you know, basis where you produce real thing and superstructure. Cultural production is part of the base today. The battles have to be fought here, not to play this game of subtraction or whatever, resistance, and so on and so on. I don't know. Now, don't ask me how to do it. The only thing I know is that 
if we will not do it, we will in 50 years live in a society in which maybe I would prefer not to live. You know, that I, I almost, you know, I know from my youth a wonderful joke, among others, that the tasteless joke, but this one is not tasteless. Uh, from the Soviet Union, the idea is that people gather on the 1st of May, uh, and then there is a big poster. In 10 years, our society will reach communism, no? And then the guy starts to laugh and jump out of joy. And they ask him, what, are you crazy? He said, ha ha, I have cancer, I will not be alive. Without <laughs> 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 like, doing something, I have almost the same reaction. I'm sorry if I was too long, but what could you do? You were forced to listen. <laughs> change, 
they do it as some kind of a superficial, sorry, superstitious gesture, just to make it sure that there really will not be a change. <laughs> I don't think that radical leftists today really want a change. If they want a change, it's the change as far as possible. They like changes in Venezuela, in Cuba, you know, you can sympathize, but they are there, they don't disturb your market for paintings you will sell, your department power struggles and so on. Revolutions are nice when they are there, you know, and then you say, my God, I live in this corrupted society, you know, how much more would I like to be there? Fuck you, go there. <laughs> like, I like even my right-wing motto, which is true. I love it. I always like this truth. Uh, you know this old leftist motto protesting neo-colonialism, Yankee go home. You know which is now the new version? Yankee go home, but take me with you. <laughs> no, 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 there are moments of truth in this. And again, if left really wants to do something, we have to start asking hard questions. It is to our perspective this talk. I don't like democracy. I don't like democracy. Yeah, I don't like democracy. I don't like to